Dynasty's Secret Comedy Podcast. Hello, Ed Byrne here. We've just finished recording our first Secret Comedy Podcast for Amnesty International, and it was quite the thing. We had the current holder of the So You Think You're Funny crown, Ashling B, bringing exactly what we wanted to the stage. Oh, what? A big fat joke! Oh, God! Oh, no! Gary Delaney managed to boil down one of his jokes to just 19 short words. I'm not saying we're not a close family, but when Dad died, I was only invited to the evening do. <laughs> and Jenny Eclair revealed a shocking secret. And not only have I got quite a, a large penis. So let's get on with it, shall we? Welcome your host, uh, me. Welcome to the Edinburgh Festival's Worst Kept Secret, it's Amnesty International's Secret Comedy Podcast, and I'm your host, Ed Byrne. <laughs> Over the next three weeks, we will be bringing you a cherry-picked selection of the best comedy, chat, sketches, and songs from all across the fringe, and recording it all here for you at The Underbelly. I'll be hosting the first few shows, and then we've got Christian O'Connell, Adam... I don't know why I say we've got, because after I stop hosting, I have nothing to do with this. But, you know, it's really, they've got. Christian O'Connell, Adam Hills, Joe Caulfield, Julian Clary, John Maloney, Alan Davies, and a couple of other surprises, all taking the reins at some point. So, thanks to all of you for coming here today to show your support for Amnesty and for great comedy. We've got a packed agenda, so let's get on with it. What better way to kick off things than with a grumpy old loose woman who was the first woman to win the Perrier way back in 1995. Will you please welcome to the stage the Eclarious Jenny Eclair. Now, I have to point something out. When uh, I please. came on stage, you introduced me as a grumpy loose woman. We have to say You've ex, been on the, yeah. Yeah, ex-loose woman was fired. Fired from loose women. I like the fact that you've just admitted to being fired. You haven't, you haven't put a spin on it and gone, uh, well, it was a mutual thing. No, because <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> I was quite happy with the job. It was near my house. Uh, <laughs> That's was, the spirit. That it is... was lunchtime. It was an hour's work. That is the commitment to performance that we all admire in you, Jenny. <laughs> the, uh, it was near my home. You got to sit down, you were behind a table, so it didn't matter what you were wearing from the bottom half down. Mm. And, so um, why were you fired then? What happened? There was a, a, an incident to be referred to from now on as graffiti gate. Um, I'm only 53 and I shouldn't be trusted with a biro. Uh, <laughs> are you piecing a picture together? At uh, ITV, um, where Loose Women is filmed, out on the South Bank near the Big Eye, um, there's a corridor, big corridor, down the television corridor, where all the people, all the successful people who have their own television shows have got big photographs behind glass. All big photographs of their smug fucking faces. <laughs> no, no, a lot of them are friends. Um, <laughs> who've done extraordinarily well. Many of whom were support acts once upon a time. Honestly, I'm like some kind of fat Buddha comedian. If you support me, you go on to have a much better career than I do. But anyway, <laughs> hence loose women. Um, so I was bored down the corridor. I wasn't by myself. Janet Street Porter with, with me. Combined age, the two of us, 300 and something or other. Really, you know, old enough to know better. But I have this biro and I see a picture that just... Uh, just, I don't know, gets on my nerves. This is before I went on HRT. I was quite unreasonable. <clears throat> um, and um, it was Catherine Jenkins. The opposite. Oh, that bitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever you do to her, she's fair game, isn't she? I've never met her. I know, she's a perfectly nice woman. Perfectly from what I nice. Gather. She was wearing a yellow dress, slit to the thigh. 
I know that photograph. Do you know that photograph? I, yeah. I don't care who it was. It was just the slit dress and the thigh. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if there was great bushes of pubic hair sticking out? Because <laughs> I'm a big fan of pubic hair and just don't think there's enough of it around anymore. <laughs> you know, it's what kept me warm through the miners' strike. But, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so just to bounce it up, I also went and drew a blue ball bag sticking out of Alan Titchmarsh's trousers. Just... <laughs> Fine drawing. And um, there was a mould in Loose Women who um, got onto the newspapers. And I've never been in trouble with the papers before. I don't know whether you have. Have you ever been caught out and... Not really. ...tabloided? No. Uh, well, I, I thought it would be the shoplifting that got me first. <laughs> I really did. You know, I've been waiting for that to break, but no. Well, you know, Richard Madeley bounced back from us, so I don't see why you shouldn't. Well, there's a sort of, there's a, a progressive thing, pattern, isn't there? You do the stand-up, then you do the reality show, then you do the panto, then you do the shoplifting, then you go back in the circle again. It all goes round in a lovely circle. That's what it happens. Anyway, um, somebody leaked this story to the newspapers, and they didn't say that I had drawn a blue ball bag up coming out of Alan Titchmarsh's trousers. They said I'd defaced Mylene class because Janet and I were so jealous of the pretty young women because we were such hags. So this... Well, why, would, why would they say Mylene class and not Catherine Jenkins, who's also young Well, and they did. They, they, they reported Catherine Jenkins. It was just that Mylene class was in the same photograph as right. Alan Titchmarsh, so they decided I was defacing her out of my jealousy for her beauty, her youth and her beauty. <laughs> And um, so this, I was phoned by the producer to say, it's on the front page of the mirror. And I can't scream because I've got testosterone problems. Um, thank you for your support. <laughs> and not only have I got quite a, a large penis, but no, I, I can't scream like a normal woman. So my screaming goes like this. Oh! So I did that a few times. And my daughter was in the house. She comes running down. She says, Mum, what have you done? What have you done now? And I said, I, I explained it to her. And she was very good. She went, you haven't killed a child. You're all right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, I think then, I, I think that there was, I don't think they trusted me after that. I feel, as, as this is Amnesty International, I feel it's quite appropriate that you've told us a story about how you now have essentially been silenced and your voice taken away because of the artistic expression that you... Yeah, You yeah. tried to express yourself you... artistically by vandalising some posters, essentially. Yeah. And for that, you, have, you, are, you are basically the same as a prisoner of conscience, I'm essentially. Like a, I am like a one-woman pussy riot. <laughs> That's what I am. Jenny, thank you very much. You'll My stay pleasure. with us for the rest My of the pleasure. show. But uh, I want you all, ladies and gentlemen, to cast your mind back to a time long ago when there were no such thing as hashtags, trendings, trolls or pokes, a place where people exchanged thoughts and ideas and showed their love through putting pen to paper, actually writing letters. Our next guest got tired of these trappings of social media and launched a campaign to rediscover the lost art of letter writing. So he started his own chain letter and then made a comedy show out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Ben Vandervelt. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Ben. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, Ed. Always remember, simple minds banging on about writing fucking <laughs> letters. I swear, I'm sure that was the, that was the start of their downfall. But uh, <laughs> International, it's always been a strong sport of the simple act of writing, and uh, today hundreds of thousands of ordinary people throughout the world still challenge cruelty and injustice <laughs> by taking a few minutes to write a letter. But you've got an idea about a letter. Can you explain it to us? Yeah, What's have we heard of Pussy Riot, yeah? 
Yeah, good. They're on at the Gilded Balloon at 4.45pm. <laughs> Going to be cracking. Um, basically, for them who don't know, they are uh, a Russian girl punk group who have been put in jail by Vladimir Putin for two years for uh, miming songs in a Moscow cathedral and recently um, were denied parole. And basically, I think that Vladimir Putin needs to grow a sense of humour to match his magnificent pecs. <laughs> so what I've decided to do is create a joke book for him by making a sort of joke chain letter. And what I'm going to do is get Ed uh, to tell me his favourite joke in a second, and then I'm going to get him to pass me on to another comedian and get them to tell me their favourite joke. And throughout the fringe, I'm going to try and collect as many jokes as possible, send them to Vladimir Putin, and that way, uh, release Pussy Riot. <laughs> yeah. Um, w would this get me put on some sort of list? Uh, in, in, you know, like, would, I, would I have to steer clear of sushi restaurants? Like well, look, this is my secret idea. I want to take up the top couple of echelons of British comedy and then I can right. sneak my way up there once the KGB have taken you out. It's, it's a good way to go. It's a very good, good way, to go. way of collecting jokes for your next year's Edinburgh show. <laughs> One of my favourite jokes, whenever someone asks me to tell, tell them a joke, uh, it's not my joke, it's just a, a joke. Okay. It's, uh, uh, I went on holiday to the Canary Islands last year, didn't see one canary. Going to the Virgin Islands next year, can't wait. <laughs> Always like that joke. So, Mate, that will be rolling round the corridors of the Kremlin within, uh, within hours. I can just see Vladimir Putin going, oh, I get, I get. <laughs> You'll be back on a future podcast to let us know how you're getting on? Yep, absolutely. Um, see, I'm hoping you're going to turn up on two or three and just reveal uh, real the jokes that I've collected so far, and you can hear them if you subscribe to Amnesty. There you go. Ben, thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Right, another great guest now, a purveyor of some of the finest satire back at the fringe this year, bearing his soul. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Marcus Brigstock. Hello. Hello, Marcus. Nice to see you. What's the name of your stand-up show again? I'm George very, McHugh, very pleased with this title, Ed, because so far, nobody gets it. <laughs> no one at all. The show is called Je Marcuse. Translation, you... I, I am Marcus. And uh, I've had, whenever it's gone out there, people have just written to me and gone, no, no, that means I accuse myself. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's a French pun. I knew it would play well at the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival. That's exactly what people want here, a pretentious French pun. Jenny, I forgot to ask you this question at the, at, at when, when you were first here, because it's the secret comedy podcast, and so I wanted to ask you if, you if you have a secret that you'd like to share with us. No. Although once you share it, it won't be a secret, I admit. No, I couldn't possibly tell. I do have some secrets. And you know why they're secrets? Because you know, they would cause so much harm and upset to those nearest to me. More harm than drawing pubes on... <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> um, what hope do we have to fight against censorship when you censor yourself? You're your own worst enemy. I, we should wrap you in barbed wire and set your hair on fire and turn you into the amnesty symbol. <laughs> <laughs> that self-censorship is so important to be serious just for a moment. Self-censorship is absolutely key to maintaining uh, the, the freedoms that we enjoy in this, in this country. Choosing the things to say or not to say because you have some moral code for yourself is, is what matters. And up Thank here you, at the Marcus. festival, up here at the festival, you see it all the time. Comedians running pell-mell into subjects like child abuse and rape and go, ha ha ha, won't it be funny just to say rape as a punchline? No offense, Frankie, but really. <laughs> 
That's point. a brave thing on home turf, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, I don't get Frankie Boyle's absolute genius. He's brilliant. Entirely wasting his time, slagging off people who don't deserve it. He does deserve it, which is why I have so few friends in the comedy community. <laughs> but anyway, self-censorship Do you have a important. secret you'd like to share with us? <laughs> Once, when I was round at Elton John's house... He no, still I, doesn't know how many syllables there are in the word sacrifice. That's true. Just added an uh in the middle of it. Uh, no, once when I was around at Elton John's house, and this is because, unfortunately, I went to boarding school when I was seven, which is very similar to being a prisoner of conscience. Um, uh, it's given me that horrible sense of overconfidence that you see represented in British politics these days. People with no clue who are doing important things like Jeremy Hunt. If ever, if ever there was a more aptly named person. But anyway, I was around at Elton John's house years ago. I knew people who knew him and I was introduced to him. And um, while I was telling one of my fascinating anecdotes, he was sat at a piano stool and he very gently started playing the piano. Like, he didn't launch into Crocodile Rock. It was just sort of, <laughs> just because that would have been properly rude. And he just, he was just gently playing the piano. And I said, aged 19, um, oh, I'm really sorry. I, I know this is your house, but would you mind not doing that? <laughs> it's just, it is a bit rude when I'm talking. <laughs> And he went, he went, oh, I'm really sorry. It's a, it's a sort of subconscious thing. Please, carry on, you... <laughs> I'm genuinely embarrassed. It took about three years before I kind of woke up and just went, oh, my God. There's a fine line, isn't there, between having a sense of entitlement and being a bit of a... Absolutely. <laughs> Those two things are, like, so close together, so and that's close. what's gone wrong that's with British I've, politics. I've known Marcus for a few years now, and I don't think he's ever really shook that sense of entitlement, I no, have to say. I haven't. I haven't. But it's innate. It's hardwired. It's time to have some stand-up, I Excellent. think. You may have seen her on Russell Howard's Good News. She, uh, she won, so you think you're funny. Will you please welcome? It's the gorgeous Ashling B. <laughs> Anyone in from Scotland? Well, yeah. oh, there you I always feel good if there's people in from Scotland, because I feel like if there's no one in a show from Scotland, it's a bit like you're hosting a come dine with me in someone's house without them being in the house. So, but I love Scotland. You cannot really help but love any country whose main custom is to walk around in skirts with no knickers on. That's my kind of people. Um, and also, it's worth pointing out, my mother is... Um, and this is not a joke. My mother is uh, a retired professional flat race jockey. But whose isn't? Um, but she actually is. And people never believe me when I say that because they're going, oh, but Ashling, you're quite tall. How are you, if your mother's a jockey, how are you tall if your mother? It's because my father was quite tall. Um, it's quite a nice story, actually. Um, uh, they met at work. Um, he was a horse. I was just the result of a ride that went too far, admittedly. But she also doesn't like me doing this job because obviously it's not a stable job. Oh, what? A big fat joke! Oh, God! Oh, no! But um, I also... You, you, might, you might notice that I talk quite fast and I think that's because I was born on March 16th, which is bang in the middle of Cheltenham. And so Mammy was watching Cheltenham as I was kind of being forced out of the stalls of her race course, so to speak. And so some of the first English I heard was like, Annie's over the hill now and there's only turf for longs to go and it's baby boy blue, baby boy blue in the front row, hoping for a boy to continue the family name. But oh no, it's a girl, everyone's disappointed, but they're pulling it together. You know, that's my kind of standard for English. So put your hand up if you don't understand. Um, but this English is my first language, believe it or not. Um, this is a, an accent, not an accident, but I am from Ireland. What? Yes. It's funny the moments when you're living abroad where patriotism hits, you know, because I'm very 
patriotic person. And the moment I felt most patriotic, really, while I've been living in London was last summer during the European Championships in football. And Ireland had qualified. Ah! We hadn't qualified since our last recession in 1988. And we were just so excited. It's a habit of ours when everything goes tits up, we like to qualify for the European Championships. But my favourite moment and the most I felt really connected to my old country was when I saw this picture that went around Facebook and Twitter and everything. And now bear in mind, we were one of the smallest countries involved, yet we had the most supporters who went over there, even though none of us could afford to go. Everyone went and there was this picture which went around Facebook and Twitter and you know it was liked and lolled and retweeted and everyone commented on it in Jamaican which is the standard language uh, used on the internet oh, oh that is really good I really like that you know the way everyone speaks in Jamaican when they comment on things and everyone in Ireland loved this photo it went to the press it went everywhere and it was basically a group of the Irish lads in their dusted off St Patrick's Day gear and they were in Dublin airport waiting to go out and they were holding this giant tricolour Irish flag and on it, and they were all giving the big thumbs up, and on it it said in giant black lettering, Angela Merkel thinks we're working. And you see, that's because you see Angela. Angela is the Chancellor of Germany, you see. And she's loaning Ireland 25 billion euro. And you know, why do Ireland need 25 billion euro? Ah, well, you know yourself. During the 90s boom, when the EU gave us a load of cash, we accidentally spent it all on disco balls for toilets and hats for unicorns and sort of forgot to invest in a healthcare system. And in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have given so many mortgages to 12-year-olds. <laughs> and you know now we have a situation in Ireland where all the pensioners have lost their pensions and all the middle-aged people are living in negative equity and houses they can't afford and all the young people are coming over to other countries trying to get work. Thanks a million for having me, Scotland. Delighted to be here. Yay! And the reason Germany have so much money is because during their boom they had a fiscal policy based on wise investment and not one based on greed and corruption. <laughs> and so why that flag is funny! is because it suggests that Angela thinks we're going to pay it back. <laughs> ah, Angela, that's is so stupid of you. You've been duped by a little bit of charm. Wink, <laughs> potato, potato. Um, <laughs> But listen, lads, before I go, I'll just leave you on this. Um, as you can see, I'm, I'm not a particularly uh, exotically coloured person. I've been compared to ham when boiled. Um, but here's a tip should you wish to appear exotic. Um, walk around with a giant Toblerone underneath your arm. It's like, oh, someone's been away. Mm. Um, lads, I've been Ashling B. You've been lovely. Thank you very much. Ashling B, ladies and gentlemen, Ashling B. You need to keep things moving along because we're already seven minutes over because of your Elton John anecdote. So, <laughs> our next guest can fit more jokes in an hour-long show than I've had hot dinners. It's the master of the one-liners, the razor-sharp joke machine that is Mr. Gary Delaney. <laughs> Gary, the last time you were here, you had three jokes named in the top ten best jokes told at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Uh, yeah, well, actually, there, there, there was, as a child, I was made to walk the plank. We couldn't afford a dog. I think that was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, my friend Dave drowned, so at his funeral we got him a wreath in the shape of a life belt. Well, it's what he would have wanted. There we go. 
So that's the great thing about being a one-liner merchant is that if somebody says, "Can you tell us a joke?" you you actually can. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I like that. There's no setting a scene or anything like that. No, no. Involved. There's no need to you know to bring sort of me into it. Really, I just uh, reel off something I wrote in advance. That's the, the limits but, of my spontaneity. Because a lot of people also they ask me and they, they ask comedians in general, "How do you remember it all? How do you remember it all?" And I, you know, because you you rise, you just remember it. But I watch guys like you and Tim Vine. And, and Stuart Francis, and I genuinely go, how do you remember it all? You, you build a memory palace. Everything is a picture, so I literally start off, I, I, um, I'll, I'll tell you the first few links in my memory palace for this show. I wake up in bed in the morning, and I'm woken up by a loud noise, and that noise is Blur, who are performing on the pillow next to my head, and I'm woken up by them playing song number two, and that, that, that wakes me up, and that's, that's the very first thing I mention in my show, and then I sort of look down the bed in a blurry state, and next to them, there's a huge pocket in the bed, and inside of that is an inhaler and a mobile phone, and that's the next couple of things I need to mention, and then behind that is like the poster for my show, and then there's a, next to that, on the, on the bedside table, you sort of and move around the house. Next to that is a, is a coffin um, with the word 19 written on the top. And that's to remind me to do a joke about, um, that's the first proper joke in the show, about the, um, what I call the My Dad's Dead shows, which have been quite big in Edinburgh in recent years. And uh, <laughs> I tried to do one of those in 19 words. So this is my My Dad's Dead show in 19 words. I'm not saying we're not a close family, but when Dad died, I was only invited to the evening do. So that's, <laughs> that's covered and truncated. I'll just wait for that award to roll. And so that's it. I just have, have, a, have a series of mental pictures all, all around the house. I have to say, when I asked this question, I did not expect such a comprehensive answer to uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very glad I got one. What you I said... do is I start uh, talking about how much I'm irritated by the ways in which idiots are suckered in by the lies UKIP are selling, and then an hour's gone by. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I have a notebook on stage for when I forget. <laughs> it's a proper peek behind the curtain here, isn't it? This is how it's done. Well, Gary, thank you very much indeed for thank joining you. us. Thanks very much. Well, our final guest is another Irishman and a bit of a polymath. He's written children's books, famously didn't win a Best Song Oscar, but did reach number 30 in the Irish charts, and has just this year starred in a feature film. Would you please welcome to the stage the delightfully silly and stupendously talented Mr. David O'Doherty. <laughs> Before David plays us out, I'd like to thank all our guests, Jenny E. Clare, Ben Vandervelt, Marcus Brigstock, Ashley B, Gary Delaney, and David O'Doherty. Thanks to everyone who's come here today to show your support for Amnesty and for great comedy. I've been your host, Ed Byrne. We'll be back tomorrow for more from The Fringe, Worst Kept Secret. Take it away, David O'Doherty. This is the greatest event in the history of mankind. I know a man who once had a wank on his bike as he was cycling home at five in the morning. It was during the summer when we were 19 and it's definitely true you wouldn't make shit like this up. And I know what you're thinking, but no, it wasn't me. Although technically it's illegal, I would still claim it if it was true. Now it's possible he'd had some sort of lady frustration that night combined with booze and joie de vie. But I'd prefer to think it wasn't the horn or the drink, but a moment of sublime clarity. He suddenly realized that all life is, is just a billion decisions. At any moment, any one of us can do anything we like. So he decided to have a wank on his bike, right then and there, starting at the roundabout. 
And as he passed the bank, wank, wank, wank. And he went by super drug, tug, tug, tug. Veering into the middle, fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. Freewheeling like the horny Lance Armstrong. Which is a pretty good nickname, because implies a strong arm and also a Lance. Also, they're both wankers. There isn't a plaque or a blue dot that commemorates the spot where he arrived at his destination. And by destination, I don't mean home. He still had a good bit to go. But it was somewhere near the Presbyterian church with a euphoric kind of a lurch that his bell rang and his lights flashed. But he didn't stop or slow down. His feet never touched the ground. He just rolled on home back to his bed. Probably a little wash before he got into the bed. Now I'm not a religious kind, but I find something almost divine in the tale of what happened that night. We can all get stuck in a rut. You wonder, is there any point to getting up? Is this all just a routine where everything's been done and everything's been seen till death whisks us away whenever it likes? But then through that dark mist, I see my friend. Wristy, wristy, wrist. Past the home for old folk. Strokey, strokey, stroke. On his way home from his shit work. Jerk, jerk, jerk. And that impossible firework explodes. And his DNA hits the road. Making the planet once again pregnant with the potential. And I think, you know, maybe things are going to be all right. Because I know a man who once had a wank on his bike. My name's Katie, and I've been part of the fundraising team at Amnesty for the past five years. I raise money for Amnesty so that we can help protect people at risk of human rights abuse. I know it sounds cheesy, but I feel so lucky to live in a country where we can take human rights for granted, where we're free to think what we want, say what we want, and not be killed or tortured by our own government. Every day at Amnesty, you hear about the awful things that people are capable of, but also about the amazing things that ordinary people can achieve and the incredible courage of people who are prepared to put their lives on the line to defend their rights. I'm happy to ask for money for Amnesty because the people who really need our help aren't in a position to ask for it themselves. People like the Burmese comedian Zarganar, who was imprisoned for 59 years for criticising his government. With Amnesty's support, he was released in less than four years. It's an incredible thing to be a part of a movement that can make that happen. You can be a part of that too. To find out more about my work and Amnesty, then just go to www.amnesty.org.uk. And please donate £5 by texting Justice and your full name to 70505. You'll make my job a bit easier too. Thank you. Your text will cost £5 plus one standard message costing up to 10p. Amnesty UK receives at least £4.75. Please ask the bill payer's permission. To unsubscribe from contact, text STOP to 70505 at any time. Full terms and conditions at amnesty.org.uk slash SMS terms.